Welcome to the Vivid Church Podcast. Wherever you're listening from today, it's our hope that this message would help you reflect the light of Jesus' life for all to see. Now, here's Pastor Justin Reimer. I love the simplicity of this statement that there's no other love like His love, and there's no other power like His power. You know, the Bible says that love casts out fear. And I wonder in a, a room like this today, as many as there are people, there would be unique sets of fears and the desire of God for you and I is that we would be set free from fear. That fear would be gone. That anxiety and worry and, uh, and, and concern would not be the things that rule us or dominate our thinking. Moreover, God has power. And his power is something that he shares with us. It's his desire that we would actually walk in step with his power. And as many as there are people here, there would be areas of weakness in our life right now where we would say, man, I, I, I need some, some extra oomph. I need the power of God in my life. And so I wonder if we could across the room just in, in a, a moment of kind of prayer, if you'd close your eyes with me for a moment and consider, is there an area of fear in your life? that's dominating your your decision-making or your thought processes, God wants to set you free from that because there's no love like his. Or is there an area of of weakness in your life that you're saying, I need God's power to be shared in my life so I could walk out in power? God, right now, as we're in your presence, I pray that you would generously share with us from the overflow of who you are. That's what you promised to do. And so I pray today that would be our experience, that we would know your love that casts out fear, that we'd know your power that is to be shared in our lives on our behalf, that we can walk in step with your spirit and in step with power. Jesus, I pray that you would lead us to be the type of people who would live fearless lives, bold, confident, Holy Spirit-filled lives in everything we set our hand to. Thank you, Jesus. And if you're in the room today and you, you have a, a need of any sort or you're praying that God would do something miraculous in your life, would you just raise your hand where you're at? If you have a need, believing for a need, awesome. Awesome, man. All over the room I see hands raised. God, you know exactly what this need is. A hand raised representing a series of doors maybe that need to be opened or closed that you need to work on our behalf financially, interpersonally, uh, in our health, in our mental health, in our family relationships. pray right now that you do miracles on miracles on miracles on miracles. Thank you, God, that you're willing and that you're able. And I pray today that we would be able to look and recognize your hand at work in our lives. In your name we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hmm. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Praise God. Well, it's great to be with you today. Look out of the room, see some happy faces. Nice to be in the room with you guys today. You can take your seat. I don't know if you noticed, but there's snow outside. And uh, in our city... That, uh, that feels apocalyptic often, any, any amount of snow. 
Everyone is dreaming about a white Christmas, and then when it comes, they have no idea what to do with themselves. So I, I hope you had a great Christmas. I'm excited that you're here today and uh, that we get to be together. As you notice in the back, Dustin's setting up some tables. We got some food on the way. We're going to feed everybody today. We're going to have a bit of a feast. It's going to be great. We got some food coming. I, uh, I definitely have some thoughts I want to share from Scripture today that I think are going to be uh, moving for us, that, that are going to spur us forward. And uh, just being together is good, isn't it? It's good. I like it. I like it. Uh, we've had many phone calls and texts over the last couple of days. People uh, in different places doing church in different ways this week, logging online, doing church with their families in homes. Also uh, heard from a number of people who are quite under the weather today, and so we're just praying for healing for them and the renewed energy as, uh, as we go forward. And uh, I just want you to know my way of thinking and on a day like today, I'm just glad to be together, truly. It would be easy to go, to go like, oh, man, there's only a few of us here. It's crazy when pastors do that, though. though. They, they stand out to a room, you know, that's not full, and they go, where is everyone? And it just, like, you know, annihilates everyone's confidence. Like, you being here is nothing, but where is everyone else? Uh, honestly, uh, as we, we got set up today, we just thought, man, even if it's just our team, we're just going to have a sweet time uh, of worship. Do you know that, that God's no respecter of crowds? Uh, he doesn't uh, wait until there's a, a large crowd to show up, so to speak. Uh, he meets with us, the Bible says, even where two or more are gathered, there he is in our midst, and he's among us. And so I feel honored that we get to do this today, and I feel grateful that uh, we get to open the scripture today and uh, and look to that. We don't really have uh, much by way of announcements at all today. Typically, you might know that we would share a few thoughts or announcements of events that are coming up, but... Uh, the new year is almost here, and when it's here, we can talk about it when we get there. For now, we're just uh, sitting kind of in this moment together. Is that cool? Yeah. It's good. Everyone have a good Christmas? Yeah. Variety of Christmases. How many people had uh, some sort of a, a gathering that involved some food? Anybody? You had a meal? Okay, amazing. It's great. Awesome. We did as well, and that was good. And I know it was probably a little different for some people this year, and uh, I hope that you were... Uh, not waiting for circumstances to make it joyful or to make it merry or to make it, uh, you know, exciting. Wherever you are, you bring the fun. Amen? I think that uh, it's only bored, boring people who get bored. The rest of us never have to be bored. You're there, the party's there. So I'm glad that you're here. I know it's a little cold in the room today, working on a few things. Uh, it, you know, it feels a little bit like, comedic today. We got screens not working and, you know, freezing cold in here. Everyone wrapping each other in their garments. Look at this, Esteban being all gentlemanly, wrapping up Letitia. Amazing. Uh, but, yeah, I'm excited, guys. Do you have a Bible with you? Did you bring a Bible? Could you just pass me my Bible, Joel? Amazing. I'm going to share a few thoughts, and then the food's going to arrive, and we're going to eat some food if you'd like to do so. If you have a commitment somewhere you need to be, uh, when it's over, you don't you don't have to stay for food. We're not like a uh, grandparent that gets insulted and uh, feels like, uh, how dare you eat and run. We're excited about that. Anyone get a bad gift this Christmas? No? Well, good for you. I did. <laughs> I did. I got I got some great gifts, but I definitely got at least one that I'm like, this was a prank, right? Like this was not serious. This was for sure a joke, but uh, hey, it's good to be it's good to be here. You have your Bible? Open, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter nine. 
Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And I want to share a couple of thoughts. Last week we looked at this, this incredible gift foretold to humanity. To us, a child is born. And uh, it echoes the words of Isaiah 9, 6, the, the type of gift that Jesus is. That uh, a child born to us will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I'm grateful again, and I won't stop saying it. I'm grateful that the government's on his shoulders. Amen? The Bible says the government's on his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and peace, the way that God rules and the way that he brings peace where he goes, there's no end to that. So it's only going to get better in relationship uh, to God. But it describes him this way. He's a wonderful counselor, meaning God brings perspective. Can you say perspective? God brings perspective to our lives. He brings perspective to our situations. That's what a counselor does. That's what, that's what therapy does. Amen? You hear people, I, I, I've heard lots of people recently uh, referencing therapy. They're like, oh, yeah, I use therapy as if it's a product to be used. You know, I, I use this certain shampoo. I use therapy. But what does therapeutic process do? It helps us to see things through a new perspective. Well, who's God? He's a wonderful counselor. He gives perspective. He allows us to see things through a new perspective. On a day like today, I could roll up into church and go, oh my goodness, Uh, you know, typically there'd be different people and more in the room, but God gives perspective. He gives perspective. He's wonderful in the counsel that he brings. He brings, he brings a, a renewed way of seeing things to our heart. Don't you love that friend that when you get around them, you start seeing things through a new perspective? And, and, and you go, oh, yeah, wh- what was I even thinking before I met this person? Well, God's a wonderful counselor. He's also a mighty God. He gives power. Can someone say power? power. I'm grateful that the gift of God is not only perspective, but it is power. He shares his power. His power is there. It's on our, uh, on our behalf. God is not powerful just for the sake of being powerful. God is not, uh, he, he's not given to bodybuilding. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not just show muscles. He's got real strength. He's a mighty God. And his power is uh, always at work on behalf of the people that he loves, sharing his victory with us. Because he has victory, we have victory. It's amazing. He also brings provision. Can you say provision? He is the everlasting father. You know what's crazy? For the entirety of my kid's life, I have made sure that I paid every single bill. And they've never thanked me. But that's okay, because it's not their job to. I'm their dad. Imagine, you know, my, my three-year-old, like, hey, Dad, thanks for paying the hydro. It was really helpful when I wanted to watch that show. It's not his job. Dads take care of things when kids aren't even watching. It's provision. Well, who's God? He's an everlasting father, always providing for our needs, always doing things behind the surface or, or behind the scenes, I should say, on behalf of us, taking care of our needs. He's not only the creator, he's also the sustainer. I was talking to a new dad recently whose learning curve is blowing their minds. They're going like, oh, I am learning so much every single day. Well, this, this father, he's been doing this forever, and he's not going to stop. He's the everlasting father, always providing. I'm grateful for the provision of God. Me and three other people are as well. Are you grateful for the provision of God? 
It's amazing that God would bring provision to our lives. I love that the scripture promises even this, that it's God who gives us the ability to work. That's an amazing thing. People are like, well, I don't know what God's doing. I know I'm working hard. Yeah, God's giving you the ability to work. He's hooking up some things. He's making some connections. The more we uh, begin to ascribe to God the work of provision in our life, the more blessed we feel, the more confident we feel, and guess what? The more peaceful we feel. He also brings peace. Can you say peace? I love that he's the prince of peace. It's the job of the king to make a plan. It's the job of a prince to execute that plan. Jesus is executing a plan of peace in our lives, bringing peace to our lives. And it's not just a subjective peace. It's objectively peaceful. God wants you to have a peace that the Bible describes this way as passing understanding. I don't even know why I feel peaceful. I just do. It doesn't make sense when you, when you run all the equations, I should be stressed out, but I'm just not. It doesn't even make sense when you, when you think, you know, I observe and I am sure people look from the outside looking in and think he must be feeling all sorts of things, but truly I'm just feeling peace. Why? Because the prince of peace is executing a plan of peace in our lives. He's bringing peace. I was thinking this morning that the message of Christmas the joy to the world, the peace on earth, goodwill towards man. That's literally just what being a Christian feels like. It's not just a seasonal thing. It is being saved. The message of Christmas ought not be seasonal in our lives. So often we, we might use the rhetoric like this. Jesus is the reason for the season. It's kind of true, but he's just the reason, full stop. He is the reason, any season, any season. And, and so let's not let contemplation about things like the peace of God be seasonal in our life. And then we get into a new year, get stressed out because we overspent at Christmas, you know, get bummed out because of the gray skies in February, and, and just kind of work our way through the busyness of the year until next December, and go, oh yeah, Jesus came as a baby so that I could have peace. His peace extends throughout all the seasons. Amen. That's the, the very nature of God. He brings to our lives perspective and power and provision and peace. And so today I want to share, uh, you know, a couple thoughts about that type of generosity, the gift that God would give over and over and over and over again. I want to become more like God. How about you? In 2022, I want to be more like Jesus. I want my life to look a little more like God. And I have a long way to go. It would be a long to-do list if we were to compare who I am today and who Jesus is. But I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to stop. The Bible says the more I look to him, the more I look like him. And I, I do think there's maybe one way, at least, that I'm starting to look more like God. God, he, he, he hints at the gifts he's going to give. I do that too. I love to do that. I love, to, I love to drop little hints about the generosity that I want to share in the lives of the people I love. This verse, it was shared 400 years before Jesus was born. Here's God. He's just dropping hints everywhere he can. In fact, if you look back to the creation narrative, you see hints of Jesus. God's just been dropping hints about how generous he's going to be, about how much they're going to like the gift. I love when I know that I'm, I'm, we had this year in our household uh, a gift given to one of the siblings so, so Arrows had this plan to give his sister Gwyneth a certain gift for a long time, and he pulled it off. He made it happen. But he also 
got the same type of gift himself. And he was so excited, like, because we got him the same thing. He was so excited to give it. And, and the more he got excited about giving it, the more he, he got excited when he experienced that same sort of thing. We were dropping hints all along. And I just love it. I love the anticipation. It's amazing. God does that. He's giving hints. He's dropping hints. And, and so Isaiah speaks into uh, uh, a season when the people of God were separated from their land and were living in Babylon, and he's speaking to them in the midst of their captivity and saying, oh, but God, God's got a plan. The plan looks like a baby. The baby's going to be uh, one who brings perspective and power and provision and peace, and he's never going to stop. The, the extension of that peace will never come to an end. God's been dropping hints. And so today I want to look at just one part of the Christmas story, probably maybe the most overlooked portion of the story, and I think there's something we could learn from it, and, uh, and it's specifically the, the narrative around the wise men. Now, in order to understand it, I want to give you a little bit of, of some historical background. For just a few moments, it's going to feel like you're in a, a world civilization's history lesson, okay? But, but I, think it, I think it actually sets the scene better. To know the, the, the rise and fall of empires actually is significant in this regard, okay? From the time that God spoke these words through Isaiah till the time that Jesus was born, there was four major world empires that rose and then fell. The first was the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was brutal. It was vicious. It was violent. It, it was the... the MO of the Babylonian emperor to take people from one region and move them into another region, take people from that region, move them over here, moving people all over the empire to divorce them from their, their history, from their families, from the connectedness they felt to culture, uh, moving people all over a vicious, vicious regime. And uh, this particular governor would actually pick the people who he saw best and brightest from each of the, the areas that he would take over and would bring them all to the capital of Babylon. So this eastern empire, you know, ripped through the known world, picking only the best and the brightest. And amongst those people, there was a, a man named Daniel. You might remember Daniel uh, in the, the story in the Old Testament, Daniel in the lion's den. It's not a Christmas story, so we won't go deep into it. But Daniel... He was seen as the best and brightest in this region uh, where God's people were. Amongst them also was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were crazy all in the book of Daniel. And Daniel was so prominent, the best and the brightest, that he was actually positioned over a group of people who were seen as the best and brightest in the area of the Medes. And, uh, and they were like magicians, okay? They were called the Magi. So they were, they were almost like wizards of their time. They, they were magical in, in, in their workings. They studied the stars. They, they had some ability in doing so to kind of, you know, give, give uh, anticipatory answers of what the future might look like. They were seen as mystics. And, uh, and so even though they were known for wisdom, and, uh, you know, studying the skies, all these things, Daniel was seen as better and brighter. And so his job was to be over this group of people that, that were seen in the Babylonian Empire as being a little bit magical. Don't know how they do it. 
They can just kind of tell. Now, part of that would have been things like this. As they studied the sky, they'd go, oh, man, we got a big storm coming. And then they'd say, guys, there's a storm coming. And sure enough, a storm would come. They'd be like, whoa, how did the Magi do it? So they, in, uh, under their way of thinking, uh, astronomy was, you know, the, the, the scientific study of stars. And then also what they would see as a bit of an art form in the early pieces of astrology, you know, kind of anticipating things. But Daniel was over them, and Daniel was a righteous man, and Daniel had a, a perspective of a Messiah that would come. Daniel, devout to God, so much so that even when it became illegal to pray, he did not stop doing the things that, that he was convicted to do. I love being around some people who are modern-day Daniels who go, regardless of restrictions, I need to be the person God has called me to be. And so Daniel instilled, I believe, in this group of magi, at least a perspective that, that there's one God and that God's got a plan. Now, the Babylonian Empire, it gave way to what was known as the Medo-Persian Empire, okay? And so that one empire sort of fell. Another empire sort of rose. The Medo-Persian Empire was actually where the, the Medes, the Magi, were from. And so in that particular empire, they rose in prominence. They weren't just the best and brightest from another region. They were like, oh, the, the, the returning heroes in this new empire that rose. It was also a brutal empire. Under this particular empire, however, there was this new type of thought or perspective that everyone should believe the same thing. The Babylonians didn't care. They just ripped people from their homes. Like, we're going to do what we're going to do. The Medo-Persian Empire said everyone should believe the same thing. And throughout the entirety of their regime, they worked hard to try to align people's thinking. Now, you can imagine how difficult that would be. If you have a room with five people in it, you usually have at least six opinions, right? And so they, they are, are trying to, you know, cross all these different cultural nuances and bring alignment. This is what's true and this is what is not and this is how we should function and this is what morality should look like. You could argue that they, they lacked some success in doing so, but they worked hard at it. They did try to do that. It was under their regime that they're trying to bring alignment to thought processes, they then were overtaken by the Greeks. I told you it's going to feel like a civilization uh, study, but it makes, it'll make sense in a moment, okay? So the Greek Empire rose. Uh, the Greek Empire, uh, led by Alexander the Great, ripped through the known world, like fast. I, I, I think uh, most of his victories were won before he was in his early 20s. He just absolutely dominated. But under Greek way of thinking, uh, the belief was, a multiplicity of gods. Everything has a god. Everything has a deity connected to it. So much so that in the city of Athens, there was even a temple built to the unknown god. And you see that in the Apostle Paul's time. They're just like, well, we're going to worship something. There's got to be something out there. But they had a god of sun and a god of wind and a god of fire and a god of earth and, and all these different pantheon of gods. Under that regime, the, uh, the, the magi continued to be a grouping of people. And these magi, who we see in a moment, the wise men who came and brought gifts, they continued to be a group of people. But in that perspective, they, they became more like consultants. It's a funny like uh, evolution of things. Often people do something, and then they begin to consult on the thing that they did. Well, that's what happened with these magi. They started to be consultants to the empire, 
and their role was kind of like, hey, we just bring a new perspective. You know, if you want what we bring, let us know. We'll get into a little creative think tank. We'll share a few thoughts. You know, we've, we've done really good at keeping this historical lineage, so we've kind of studied the rise and fall of things. We're really known for, for a lot of wisdom, and, and by the way, we can see things in the stars. So if that comes in handy, we're just kind of a one-stop shop for wisdom. And so they became kind of like known as wise men in that Greek uh, world. And then that empire gave way to the Roman Empire, okay? So the fourth primary empire from the time that God said, I got a gift for you, to the time that that gift was realized, there is the rise and fall of different empires. I think this ought to encourage us at least that when things aren't going the way we want them to go today, that doesn't mean that God hasn't stopped working. And it doesn't mean that you heard him wrong. And it doesn't mean that his promise won't endure. And it doesn't mean that that you, you, you missed it somewhere. God's got a plan and he works through history. He's always done this. Under the Roman Empire, which was a Western movement, uh, they pushed back the, those powers that, that would be from the, the ancient Babylonians, from the Medo-Persians, and from the Greeks, who were all Eastern in their thinking. The, the Western movement, known as Rome, pushed back. And uh, under their regime, the, the Magi, though they continued to be kind of a small cohort of people, they, they went and moved to the Parthian Empire, and they had only one role in this new empire. The Roman Empire thought very differently. They were like, you do whatever you want to do as long as you send us tax. We really don't care. Our, the tie that binds us is a, a financial tie. So you be you, but send us, and as long as you're, you're given the honor that we deserve, we're good with that. And so under the Roman Empire, the, the Magi were reduced to just one thing, only one thing. The only thing they did in the Roman Empire is they were known as kingmakers. All that set up, just so you catch this, their role was kingmaking. And so in this great advanced empire that stretched over the whole known world at the time to every far reach, they kind of went until they were like, well, I think we've dominated everyone here. Let's go in another uh, direction and dominate everyone there. The role of the Magi was simply this, to show up at the coronation of kings and give their endorsement. That was it. They were kingmakers. They had crazy social credibility. Over the span of those 400 years, they must have acquired a significant amount of wealth. I imagine being able to prophesy and predict things in a godless culture is an easy way to make a little money. These guys were loaded, and their only role was to be kingmakers. And in the Roman Empire at that time, the clash of Western thinking from Italy that stretched all the way into Persia, there was this little region in the middle called Israel, and this little region in the middle uh, almost always historically has acted as a buffer between east and west. And so in this particular landscape, there was this little region that was kind of a buffer between eastern thinking and western thinking, or I'll do it your way, western thinking and eastern thinking. It's a little buffer that is the, the nation of Israel, and, uh, and the governor over that particular area was known as Herod. You remember the name Herod? Okay, I'm telling you, this is a history lesson, but it's going to make sense, okay? So Herod was a paranoid ruler. Now, none of us would know what that's like. But if you can imagine someone in a political setting that was paranoid, Herod was a paranoid leader. In fact, Herod, his history would say, was always plotting a murder. He was that thin-skinned. 
He killed his in-laws. He killed some of his sons. He killed his mother-in-law. He, like, like this guy was just always on a rampage. In fact, before he died, he gathered all the chief officials in his nation and said, on the day I die, murder them all because I know no one's going to mourn me, but there better be mourning in the nation on the day that I die. This guy was petty and paranoid. And under petty, paranoid leadership, some crazy things happen. And, and, and so he went to Rome and he stood before the emperor and he said this, hey, if I'm going to lead in this very crucial region known as Israel, then, then I need more authority if I'm going to do it well. What are you going to do to give me more authority? And the emperor's like, I don't really care. It's an insignificant province that means nothing to me. What are you asking for? He goes, well, I'd like the title king if I could. And so the emperor's like, cool, man. You're king of an insignificant nothing area. Go for it. And so he came back with the endorsement of the king or the emperor. I'm now the king of the Jews. All that context, just to give you this perspective, this little region in between Eastern and Western thinking with a paranoid, petty king, his little demi-kingdom named Herod. And into that setting, we read Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. You know the story. I hope the context helps bring a little more emphasis to this specific Story. Check this out. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked Herod, where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? Now, how did Herod become a king? He complained to the emperor and asked for a fake title. And here they are, these kingmakers known in the empire, they, they show up when it's time to endorse a king. These guys show up and Herod's like, oh, they, they're coming to endorse me. They're coming to actually give that, the little blue check mark to my kingship. They're coming to verify my authority. And they show up and like, oh, hey, you, you know, you're King Herod? Oh, that's cute. Hey, where's the one who's born the king, though? Where's the one that's born the king? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now imagine the paranoia that comes to this petty King Herod. Imagine the, the shockwaves that is sending through his tiny little insignificant demi-kingdom. He says this in response. Uh, King Herod heard this and he was disturbed. Of course he was. And all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Why? Because when a petty, paranoid leader gets disturbed, they make sure that their misery loves company. Are you with me? And so he says, verse 4, he called together all the people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They said, well, in Bethlehem in Judea. And they replied, for this is what the prophets have written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not by any means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them exactly the time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, could you go search out carefully for this child? And as soon as you find him, report back to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Translation, so that I may come and murder him. After they had heard the king, they went out on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went out ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, 
they were overjoyed. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Interesting story. See, the the nativity scene is more impressive when everyone shows up at the same time. It's just not the way the story actually happened. The nativity scene is perfect, right? An angel in the sky over top of a, a beautiful barn. Finely manicured. There, there's, there's really peaceful animals, no manure. Clearly, you know, designed by someone who's never been around livestock. And then there's Mary and Joseph, their teenage parents, looking calm. Because that's realistic. So there's shepherds who were unkept and probably didn't bring any hand sanitizer, but somehow they're near to the baby. And then wise men show up, just three of them, and they come rolling up with a, you know, all their kingly garb, and they're bringing gifts that they pre-wrapped for, and it all kind of culminates in the same moment. That's the scene known as the nativity. It's just not the way it happened. This would have happened you know, probably up to about two years later, after Jesus had been born, and they were still living in Bethlehem. What you'll notice is that Mary and Joseph, they weren't from Bethlehem. They were sent there only by uh, tyrannical uh, rule from the, the government. They were sent to go and register somewhere that they had never lived, that they had no connection in. So their teenage parents who live in a place, they had no connections there because they didn't even have a place to stay when their baby was born. You catch the scene, right? It, it's, it's isolated. It's unfriendly. It's unkind. It's unfair. And that's the setting that they give birth to. And then in that setting, if you look historically, the, the city of Bethlehem, most of the houses in this pretty socially depressed region were actually just limestone caves in the side of the mountainside. And so their house that they showed up to was probably like a hole in, in a cave in the side of the mountain. Joseph, who was a carpenter by trade, was trying to rebuild his small business. And, uh, you know, in that time, pre-internet, Working from home was not as lucrative as it can sometimes be today. So this is the setting, the scene that we find them in when the Magi show up, these kingmakers from the east. They show up to a paranoid king. We've come to worship the king of the Jews. And uh, he, he goes, yeah, let's do this thing together with the intent to come and murder Jesus. They show up into this cave. Mary and Joseph are there. They probably did like everyone does and like, oh, please don't mind the mess. You know, so sorry about it. And, and, and the Magi being polite, like most people are, were like, oh, I hardly even notice. Looks great in here. It's great. But, but history says when they rolled, they probably had up to 1,000 people with them. So this was not just, there were three gifts, but it probably was not three wise men. History, church history, I think, has named them Malchiar, Balthazar, and Caspar. That's not anywhere. That's just like, those would be nice names for that time. You know, it'd be like, they could have been Jeff, Chad, and Steve. But... But they came probably an entourage of about a 1,000 people because when they showed up, they were there to coronate kings. They were there to endorse kings. They show up to a little cave. It says they bowed down and worshiped him so that, that, like a toddler, an unimpressive, snotty-nosed toddler. And like, oh, this is the king. How do we know? Because there's a star in the sky. 
How, how do we make that connection? Because 400 years ago, a guy named Daniel taught our great, 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 great grandfathers to anticipate that God would give an indication in the heavens of a child that would be born and that that is going to be game changing because it actually stretches, uh, you know, over all eternity. That's worth worshiping. They traveled at least 600 miles on foot to come, and they brought gifts with them. Now, the gifts are kind of cool. The gold would be a gift only for a king. Gold is, is significant in that time specifically for kingly purposes. And so they, they anticipated we're coming to worship a king. Frankincense was a gift that was exclusively uh, used in, in the worshiping of the gods. So this was uh, a gift indicating the one we're coming to worship is also divine in nature, which is pretty cool that they saw that and recognized that and knew that. We're coming to, to worship a king, but a king who is a deity, who's godlike. And then myrrh was the most mortal gift you could possibly give. Myrrh was basically Febreze. It was used to cover over the stench of life. Like, if you, if you were rich enough to have a little bit of myrrh, you'd throw it in your hockey bag with your, your hockey pads to, to cover over that smell. And myrrh was used most significantly when, when bodies died to, to cover over the smell of decay. So what, what did they bring? They brought three gifts that were indicating we're coming to worship a king who is a God-man. It's pretty cool. They like like they maybe not they didn't know everything but they got a few things right. I think maybe similar to to some they didn't actually have a personal relationship with God but they were searching, they were searching out truth. They were trying to figure this thing out. Maybe there's some people here today that's been your story. You're like I don't know all the answers but I'm really trying to figure this thing out. So they show up to worship a a king who was a God man. And as they do so, they say, I'm going I'm to give you four quick points in the next five or six minutes, okay? The food just showed up. We're going to eat food soon. Aaron, you didn't know, man. We just wanted to throw a party. We got pizza today. We're going to eat some food today. But, uh, but I want to give you four little thoughts about generosity. And you go, well, why would you be talking about generosity today? Because we all did our gifts yesterday. But this season is a season of giving. And if we're going to be people who, who live according to the word, the things that are true of this season are true of all seasons. And there's, there's a significance because in this story, we see the groundwork for reciprocating generosity. 400 years earlier, God said, I'm going to give you a gift, and it will be born to you, and it's going to bring you, you know, perspective, power, provision, peace. The Magi, they saw the indication that God was coming, and they too brought gifts. We, in response to the generosity of God, ought to live lives of that type of generosity. Let me tell you four things very quickly that I want to do better in 2022. Is that cool? Okay, number one, we see that, that giving is about the excellence of our spirit. When you give, it's not simply the excellence of the recipient, it's the excellence of your own spirit. We, we don't set our level of generosity based on, on what another person has given to us. We set our base of, uh, level of generosity on the excellence of our own spirit. Do you follow with me? Maybe you got a cheap family member. It doesn't mean you need to give them a cheap gift because giving is about the excellence of your own spirit. In the same manner, you might look around and say, what I observe in the world around me today is it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's every man for himself. But that's not how we are. That's not how we operate because generosity is about the excellence of our own spirit. This was true of the Magi. They came with preparation for, like, like we're going to hit the triple header. A king, 
God, man. Like we're, we're really set, we're setting this ourselves up. Why? Because we're excellent. Where we roll, a thousand people follow. We're kingmakers. And I think the same is true of you and I. You know, the Bible says that we decide who will be the king of our heart. We're like magi. At least in our own lives, we're kingmakers. And I believe that, that if we're going to live like Jesus called us to, on earth as it is in heaven, that we have the opportunity, even in society, to be like, we're kingmakers. We, we can decide who's king of this season. I think it's kind of cool. Excellence in the own spirit. Number two, the thing we see about generosity is that giving is about expectation, the expectation that we have. For these magi, like I said, what they expected was to see a, a king who was a God-man. Crazy specific gift, but they gave with expectation. The Apostle Paul teaches us to do the same. He goes, when you sow, you can expect to reap. When you give, you can expect that what you will get back will be a multiplication of what you've given. So if you give a little bit, you can expect to receive back a little bit. But when you give a lot, you can expect to receive back a lot. Now that's true in every relationship you'll ever have. When you give, you can give with some expectation. There's some people who try to be holier than God. It's a crazy venture. They're like, well, when I give, I don't, I don't have any expectation whatsoever. God can do with it what God has told us, a principle that exists throughout all eternity, that what you sow, you will reap. So when you give, when you put a seed in the ground that is for a mango tree, you should not anticipate watermelon. Just not the way it works. What you sow, you will reap. That's the principle. And so when we give, we can give with some expectation. And the Bible says things like this. There's a promise in Scripture that those who give to the poor are lending to God, and God repays all his debts. Kind of cool. When you look for opportunities to be generous, you are actually setting yourself up with expectation to receive generosity from God. Number three, giving creates a shared experience. Imagine how crazy this shared experience was in that cave. They, they knock on the door of a limestone cave, and Mary comes out. She's looking a little tired because she's got a two-year-old, and Joseph's trying to scrap together a little business in a new area where he doesn't have any connections, where he doesn't know anyone, and, and so they don't have much, and then they, they, they roll in, and they're like, oh, it's him. They'd searched for two years. When they met Jesus, they knew. You know, I found this true in the lives of people who are searching for God. They search and search and search until they meet Jesus, and then they know. They had a shared experience. What opened up the experience? Well, really the generosity. Like, that, that's what made this moment. The Bible says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. So as they left, she's like, wow, I got some things to think about here. They brought gifts a shared experience. Number four, lastly, giving extends beyond that moment of experience. What they brought to the equation, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, had significant value to it, and it extended in a really cool way beyond the experience. Let me tell you how. When the the Magi didn't return to Herod, Herod sent out a decree that in the region of Bethlehem, every boy two years old or younger should be murdered. But but not Jesus, because an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and he says to him, hey, you need to get Mary and Jesus out of here right now. There's murder coming. There's you know, a systematic governmental genocide coming for boys just like Jesus. You need to get out. And so they went to a place called Egypt. And in Egypt, they would have been really unwelcome. They would have had no connections whatsoever. And the racial tension of the time would have meant they had no ability to work. 
but they just came into some crazy finance that was able to sustain them. Imagine this. I just want, want to say if we could take a, a, a quick step back. 400 years earlier, a guy named Isaiah, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is writing a promise. For to us a child is born and a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. It will be wonderful counsel, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Into that context, people are going, well, what do you mean by that? And you've got Daniel, who's been ripped out of his nation, and he's put in charge of a group of people from another nation. And he's going, well, let me tell you a little bit about what Isaiah is talking about. And he's instilling godly value systems. And over 400 years, nations are rising and falling, but the, the truth endures. That's, that's the, the power of truth, that it can endure through ups and downs. And so the, uh, the rising and fall of empires, the truth continues. And then that day, a star appears, the magi, they see it, they go, we got to prepare. They have excellence in their own spirit. They have great expectation. They want to go experience something. So they bring gifts with them. And it was those gifts that sustained Jesus from starving to death in Egypt. I just want us to see that God actually is working in profound ways in our life right now. And you might not notice it or feel it, but I want you to, to begin to believe it, that God has a purpose for your life, that he's using you in, in, in the story of history. It's both humbling and crazy empowering that God could use us in small ways. And I don't know about you, but as I enter this next year, I just want to be more like God in my generosity. I want to actually play a small part in a big thing. And if God could use me, maybe to notice a person in need and extend some kindness. If God could use me, maybe to see a need and instead of complaining about it, just fill it. If God could use me in, in my faithfulness in, in giving and that that could somehow extend an experience, it would be amazing. You know, probably the most quoted scripture is John 3.16. John 3.16, you see all these attributes of generosity. It says, for God so loved the world. That speaks to the excellence of God's own spirit. His generosity actually came from his own internal value system. It doesn't say God so loved the world because the world was freaking awesome. It says that God so loved the world. That, that, that's a, a nature of his character. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? With expectation. That whoever believes would not perish. They'd have a shared experience, but they'd experience life eternally. That's extending beyond that moment of experience. And guys, we have the choice to be kingmakers in our own lives, at least in our own hearts. We're the magi. We decide who's the king of our life. Who's the king of our life? Who are we going to crown king of our life? I think the story about Christmas is not just that we, we go gather back mentally around a manger and go, oh, what a cute baby, but that we allow it to penetrate the fiber of our heart and change the way that we live. Amen? Can I pray with you? Jesus, I ask right now for every person under the sound of my voice, first and foremost, God, that we would make you king of kings in our life. I thank you that you've given us the authority to determine who we will serve and how we will love and how we will live. And I pray for every person here today that we would have a revelation of your love and kindness for us. And even as we see in John 3.16, your love for the world that sent a gift of Jesus that we could experience life eternally. Help us, God. Help us, God, to make you king of our hearts. We hope that you enjoyed this edition of the Vivid Church Podcast. For more information about Vivid Church, check out our website at www.vivid.church. 
or look us up on Instagram at vivid.church. Have the best day.